0: Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem-solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. All right. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here, as always, with our host, Sucheta Kamath. We get uh, Dr. Julie Harbaro Krupa back on the show today. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Sucheta.
1: Yes. Good morning. And great to be with you, too. And Todd, have you ever put together anything from Ikea?
0: I actually have not, but I've heard plenty (laughs) of horror stories. (laughs)
1: Well, it's an experience, let me tell you. (laughs) You know, the reason I talk about that is when we buy and, you know, self-assemble kits and they always come with a manual and instructions and visuals and you sit down, it may be tedious and complicated, but at least there's some guidelines and something that allows you to put those things together. So when it comes to traumatic brain injury or brain injury in general or any anomalies where we have to kind of reconstruct a path you know building things repairing things versus restoring things and that's the parallel that comes to my mind but not necessarily it comes with a manual. And that's why having experts who understand the world of rehabilitation and how to bring you know, skills back into focus and how to help people restore their lives becomes so critical. And most importantly about this process, I feel, is the culture, the culture which is a mindset. You know, What do we say to people who are going through this process? How do we handle people who are uh, slight than perfect or less than perfect The way they would like themselves to be. And finally, I think, how do we process all the things that need to go into helping somebody return back to full, meaningful life? And that's why I am looking forward to my conversation with Julie. So here's a little bit about her. People who heard her already know, but Julie Harbar Krupa is a senior health scientist on the traumatic brain injury team in the Division of Unintentional Injury Prevention at the Injury Center at the CDC. As a behavior scientist, her role on the TBI team is to devise research projects and products to better understand trends in TBI in the United States and to promote health outcomes for individuals living with traumatic brain injury. She is a project lead on the Reports to Congress the management of traumatic brain injury in children, and the return to school projects in the division. Recent publications include a report on the life expectancy and employment outcomes for moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, PTSD in mild TBI, a point of healthcare entry for children with concussion, and talking to young children about concussions, and so on and so forth. She has 30 years experience and has authored more than 20 publications and presentations in the area of traumatic brain injury with the specific emphasis in the rehabilitation of pediatric population. And she is a great friend, and I am excited to get to collaborate one more time with her. So we are so fortunate to have her come back and talk about rehabilitation.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, if this week's conversation has, is as informative as last week's, we're in for a treat. So here's Sucheta's second Conversation with Dr. Julie Harbauer-Krupa.
2: Welcome back, Julie. Such a delight to have you back. And now I get to ask you more important questions, such as what do we do about traumatic brain injury and concussion and mild traumatic brain injury? What's the process of treating a traumatic brain injury? Well, the first step
3: is to see your healthcare provider for a diagnosis. And as we are recommending, we just recently released at CDC guidelines for diagnosis and management of mild TBI in children, but in that, we are specifically suggesting that there's a discharge plan for return to school for children, return to play, so that you not only get a diagnosis and documentation, but you get recommendations for what you should do, how to follow up. That's very important across all healthcare providers. So people go to the ED, that's important to get follow-up. There are primary care providers, neurologists. Wherever you go, it's very important to get follow-up. Now, what types of... I see you mentioned therapy. So medical management and therapies, I think they're often referred to based on a patient's symptoms. And sometimes, especially with a mild injury, people might be sent home with a request to follow-up and when they follow up, that's when additional therapies or services are prescribed because they've had symptoms more than 24 hours. So I think it's really important for individuals to not only seek a healthcare assessment, but also follow up, particularly if they're experiencing symptoms past the point of when their healthcare provider told them they should be recovered.
2: So this is a little tricky question. Why there is the inter-practitioner variability? I know CDC puts out these guidelines and I think ideally everybody should be adhering to to these guidelines. But I have in my practice experienced people receiving various diagnoses, I mean, um, recommendations that are not consistent or rather, you know, I have worked with children who were sent home to say, just watch or all you need to do is rest. And there were no specific instructions given whether they should not have TV on. So this one particular Woman, she was 17, who had a concussion during soccer. She watched. Uh, she was on bed rest, in quotes, for two weeks, and she watched TV the whole time. In fact, so low cognitive activity, but uh, uh, you know, watching TV is a cognitive activity. And so that I find that there's a lot of uh, still inconsistency between practitioners, and I don't know how does C- CDC gets its word out.
3: Yeah, thank you. That's a great point, and we have heard that same feedback from a variety of partners, from schools, from healthcare providers that especially parents will say, my primary care physician told me this. And then when I went to a specialist, they told me this, what do I do? And we are starting to, we just released those guidelines in December and they're on our website with tools. And we just implemented a training for primary care physicians for children, recognizing that for more mild injuries, that's, who is seeing these kids or maybe seeing these kids. So I think we're trying to disseminate and improve the continuity of care and the consistency of care. But if you look at our entire country, we have a lot of healthcare settings. We have academic medical centers, large scale medical centers, and then we have rural hospitals. So it's going to take time to get the word out, but we're working on it and I think podcasts like this get the information out And our stakeholders help us get that information out as well.
2: That's great. And I really was thinking about this, that what about public announcements? You know, I don't see lately, I mean, there's, of course, we are bombarded through so many channels, but 10, 20 years ago, there used to be a lot of public announcements about various things. And I feel TBI is one of the disorders that never gets that kind of attention, even though I don't know a single person who may not have heard or known somebody who has, hit their head, you know, whether seriously or not. Yeah. I feel there the common sense knowledge is very poor amongst laymen. You know, they tend to use their conventional wisdom when it comes to how, what steps they take, you know, just like we were having a conversation with our producer Todd before.
3: Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think lay people tend to use their experience and their opinions about seeking medical care and following up. Absolutely. One of the ways we're trying to get out information is through social media. CDC Injury Center has a website, and we also have our Heads Up website. That's on, We're on Facebook and Twitter, multiple forms of social media. So that's one way to get the information out, and we are active in the, that arena. You mentioned public service announcements. That's also a possibility. I think that requires more funding, and that's something for the future. But right now, we're really working through our social media channels and our stakeholders. So we work very closely with the American Academy of Pediatrics. We work with them to develop this training. And so it's not only on their website and being promoted internally through their group, but also on ours. So And and we work very closely with the Brain Injury Association of America and the United States Brain Injury Alliance and another group called NASHIA, which is the National Association of State Head Injury Administrators. So those three groups help us with this dissemination across
2: the U.S. So partnerships and social media. Fantastic. No, that's great. (laughs) It's great to see CDC out there in social media because we need this kind of information. So now there's a lot of cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and social changes, and of course physical changes after a traumatic brain injury what kind of different therapies a patient needs? Well, it depends on what they're
3: experiencing. I think individuals who have a moderate to severe injury may need more than one type of therapy. They may need physical therapy for motor skills. They may need occupational therapy and they may need speech and language therapy to work on their communication and their cognitive skills. Physical therapy, I know even for mild brain injuries, is now working on balance and vestibular function. There's been more recent diagnosis of ocular motor issues that are requiring either physical therapy or working with an ophthalmologist or an optometrist to improve that. So I think what physicians refer to is based on the patient's symptoms.
2: So what's the bottom line when receiving or taking into consideration what will make the the patient receive all the therapies that he or she needs in a timely way? And that will make an impact.
3: Well, that's a good question. I think at the time of injury, depending on the severity, so people with more severe injuries are going to demonstrate more severe symptoms that their physician would be more likely to refer for therapies. However, their receipt of therapies is dependent on their insurance funding. So it boils down to need and whether they have availability of funding for those services. And I think that's true even for more mild injuries. Physicians must document a medical necessity for them to be able to be eligible for insurance funding for services.
2: Got it. So now let's talk about my favorite topic, which is cognitive rehabilitation. And you and I have done this, I mean, and I have done this with patients for a long time. So can you help define cognitive rehabilitation? And how is it different for children compared to adults?
3: That's a great question. So cognitive rehabilitation is defined in many ways, but I refer to it as a system of therapy that works on thinking skills. The American Congress of Rehab Medicine has published two systematic reviews on cognitive re- on best practices for cognitive rehabilitation in adults, and the pediatric and adolescent task force is currently working on a systematic review for children to see what's available in the literature on interventions for children to make recommendations. It is skill building, it's developing compensations, and it's getting people to look at what they have to work on to improve their cognitive abilities. What's different in adults and children is adults is primarily targeted to going back to work or that adult lifestyle. Children navigate two models of care for their brain injury, the healthcare system where they're initially diagnosed and depending on availability of insurance funding, they may receive therapy services for cognitive rehab in that setting. The other model where children are seen is schools and that's where they spend the most time. Schools are mandated to help children learn which is still working on their thinking, but they don't call it cognitive rehabilitation because that's viewed more as a medical term, but they still do very similar things working on learning. So I think these systematic reviews are good, but they often talk about studies where cognitive rehabilitation is done, not where these services can be implemented. For adults, sometimes they have to practice in their work environment. Whereas children, they spend most of the time in school. So medical cognitive rehabilitation isn't done in that environment, but schools do focus on learning. So how can we take what we know about good practices for after the injury and incorporate them into learning and teaching at school? And I think too, what contributes to your ability is your what's called cognitive reserve So adults have more cognitive reserve than children because they've lived longer and they've been in school longer and they may have been to graduate school. They have a lot of reserve that they can build on when working in cognitive rehab. Teenagers have more cognitive reserve than two-year-olds because teenagers have at least learned to read and do math, whereas two-year-olds are just starting to talk. So I think The type of cognitive reserve you have built up contributes to your ability to use things like strategies to help you after the TBI.
2: And You know, I think uh, I haven't had any expert uh, talk about such a global view on cognitive retraining or or cognitive rehabilitation. And particularly, no one has really talked about cognitive reserve. Can you elaborate on that topic a little bit so we can think about some components or how to uh, kind of even provide guidelines or when dealing with children in schools because I see which you mentioned earlier that in school it is not the rehabilitation specialist who's providing strategies or skill building training but it's the teachers or learning specialists but they don't have the background and so they are not necessarily attuned to the idea of cognitive reserve.
3: Right and I think What teachers don't always understand after traumatic brain injury is children can bring some skill sets. For example, a teenager may know math facts, but not be able to apply them like they used to. Or they may lose math facts, but they can complete an algebra equation. That's always very confusing because of this gaps in their cognitive reserve. So yes, school, that's one way children are different teachers are required to make sure children learn, but they don't always understand the implications of a traumatic brain injury on school performance. And I know people like Dr. Ann Glang at University of Oregon, she runs a center for research on pediatric TBI. And she's done a lot of investigation on teaching strategies and practices that might help children with TBI. So there has to be a melding of that culture of addressing medical needs related to cognition to school needs related to learning for children.
2: So we start getting into the granular picture of how to implement the treatments. And is there consistency and is there like a unifying understanding in all areas or experts how to do that? Because I see a lot of variability between practitioners, uh, the kind of information that they have received, the kind of experiences they have. And then they, again, tend to tailor their approach to that child or adult's need based on what they know, which may not be adequate. You know, so there's a lot of interpersonal variability again.
3: I agree with you. And a lot of that is, I think, a traumatic brain injury, the impact of it on learning and lifestyle isn't well understood across all people who interact with individuals who have this brain injury. Even in the workplace, someone who's walking and talking okay, but may have changed in their thinking, it's a surprise. And in schools, um, Dr. Glang has documented how teachers don't always get the, they don't get pre-service training. So when they're training to become a teacher at the undergraduate level, they really don't get information on traumatic brain injury and they also don't get it when they're teaching. So there isn't consistency about how this is applied over across domains.
2: So you are a a speech and language pathologist at heart. Uh, So how does your background and training and particularly your clinical experience inform your scientific research when it comes to the way cognitive rehabilitation is done and the way policies, I don't want to say policies, but the information that you're gathering at CDC?
3: Oh, thank you. Well, I'm very lucky That I've had the privilege of working and interacting with individuals who've experienced a traumatic brain injury because they have taught me a lot about what to look for. And I think one of the things that I did since I've been at CDC is I wrote a paper on the models of care that children navigate and the gaps between them because that wasn't out there. People write about what happens in healthcare settings, what happens in schools, but nobody talks about the fact that this is a continuum of care for children. And there's gaps in communication between the healthcare settings and schools. So, for example, healthcare settings may not know what's going on at school, and schools may not get the information about the child's brain injury, which is conveyed to them by the parents. Parents may not choose to report it, or they may not have adequate information from their healthcare provider to take to the schools. So that paper, I think that I wrote before we did our report to Congress on the management of traumatic brain injury in children, talks about those gaps and the importance of bridging those gaps. And I really learned that from clinical practice because, as you mentioned, you see that parents are told different things, adults are told different things, depending on their provider and how to manage their expectations. So That's one thing I did. I also enjoyed working with Traumatic Brain Injury Model Systems where we looked at their data and wrote some papers on social and employment outcomes for individuals who experienced a moderate to severe TBI. We also have a book on our website on outcomes that shows improvement and decline over five years that I think can be very helpful. So What I'm doing at CDC is informed by my time in clinical practice because I'm able to say, okay, this is what I saw as the need. People said this is a need, so we need to get some research and data done to help them get their needs met. Because I think research and publishing data informs policy, it informs healthcare, it informs a lot of of places that people need to get help.
2: And I personally want to thank you. For making this contribution to the field and particularly this invisible gap, you know, you are the champion for these children and adults who, as it is, suffer from this invisible uh, hidden injury, if I may say so myself. And I think, I know it's going to take a while for everybody to come on the same page, but I think this kind of effort and particularly your lens being informed by clinical practice really adds tremendous value. To the work you are doing. So I'm so grateful for your commitment, honestly.
3: Oh, thank Thanks. you. Thank you. And, and that's my motivation to keep working too.
2: Yeah. So let's, I uh, have a few more questions. So we talked about the cognitive uh, rehabilitation and uh, the learning in the brain. And is that different from the way somebody who is an adult who is trying to make academic uh, re entry versus professional re entry versus job entry? Does the cognitive uh, retraining change? based on the context where the person is going to function.
3: That's exactly right. And especially if they're going into a new learning environment, for example, in adults who had a brain injury but have decided to go back to school, that may be new learning of information, which is particularly impacted by cognitive changes, whereas someone who's been a career person and has the content already learned... That's not new learning when they go back to work. Got it. Someone who's a skilled programmer, for example, and they've worked in the field five years is different than someone just starting to school in, pro- in computer programming. So, and that the- relates to cognitive reserve, as we talked about before. If you have a degree in computer programming and you've worked a few years, you have a reserve of your learning and living with your learning in a job situation where someone who's just starting to school is facing all that new learning. They don't have cognitive reserve in that topic area.
2: Got it. So do we now have a good understanding of relationship between changes that come after TBI and mental health or, and people who have had a tendency to have mental health challenges? Uh, do they get exaggerated after a traumatic brain injury or vice versa?
3: That's a good question about mental health changes. I think what you'll see in the literature for adults is that people are starting to report increases in depression, anxiety in adults. I've seen that in the literature. In children, our paper on prevalence shows a higher association of those kinds of conditions in children who have a lifetime history of TBI but there's not been a lot published on children that that they necessarily develop those characteristics after the TBI. Much more work needs to be done.
2: You know, many years ago, I read a paper, and I don't even now remember the name of the author. I think Tom was his first name, but he wrote about, uh, he was a psychologist, clinical psychologist, and he talked about something called shaken sense of self. And so after a traumatic brain injury, a lot of individuals who, particularly in the mind-traumatic brain injury category, don't never get proper information or are not diagnosed properly or do not receive the the support and care in the beginning stages of their post-traumatic period, they develop this altered sense of um, of competence, and they are left to reconcile that within themselves, and that causes incredible changes in the way they proceed with the rest of the life. And uh, that has always struck with me, this shaken sense of self, that I feel that Some of these problems that you are trying to tackle and study at a global level are so important because there are people who are not living their lives up to their potential, but they don't have a quite definite understanding of why, but it could be related to traumatic brain injury.
3: Yes, it could be. Or if they have a family history of conditions, this is where it gets muddled. So they may have a family history, they may have previously maybe had some symptoms, but were not diagnosed and then they have a brain injury and it exacerbates those symptoms. So there's all these complex issues on looking at individuals after the TBI who may develop mental health issues. What we know the TBI does is that it changes your brain physiologically and also changes your ability to regulate your behavior. And so these kind of things can come up as a result of the injury, but particularly I think if you have a family history or pre-injury history of these things, they may become more prominent.
2: Yeah, and I think as we consider many factors that go into management, you were talking about this depression, anxiety, and and even anger after TBI. That has to be taken into consideration through the lens that there is actual physiological change. This is not a person who just gets angry, that is because of the changes to the brain, right? So this, uh, the presentation right. of a person will be different than managing other mental health disorders without the TBI.
3: Yes, and that's true because their behavior regulation may be off. And one thing that I'll share that we do know about outcomes, and CDC sponsored a study in 2010, is there's a large amount of individuals self-reporting a traumatic brain injury in the justice system. And there have been studies documenting the fact that they're reporting a history of childhood brain injury. They're in the justice system. So we know the rates of self-reported traumatic brain injury in the justice system are high. They're between 60 and 80%. And that tells you that behavior regulation, and we can't say, oh, the TBI caused them to enter the justice system, but we know there's a high rate of a history of it. And we don't want people to end up there. But we do know that a traumatic brain injury can change your behavior regulation. It can make you more depressed. It can make you more anxious or more violent, as you mentioned. We want to try to prevent people
2: from having those kind of outcomes. So as we end our discussion here, what are some of the good resources that you recommend for managing TBI?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I do recommend our CDC website. There's a couple of things I want to point out to. One is we have a heads up campaign that we actually talk about what should be done at the time of injury, particularly for children. We also have some reports to Congress. So there was one done a few years ago that talked about epidemiology and rehabilitation for all ages, but it's a pretty big focus on adults. And We now have one that was released in February of 2018 on the management of traumatic brain injury in children that also gives opportunities for action that I think will help people understand better what's needed. So those are two things on the CDC website. I also will refer people to their state brain injury association, whether it's the Brain Injury Association of America, U.S. Brain Injury Association To get resources, they're usually well-connected in the state. And also the National Association of State Head Injury Administrators, NASHIA, on their website has a traumatic brain injury lead agency for every state in the country where people can go to to get resources on traumatic brain injury. And the last reference I'll give you is a site called brainline.org. It's run by public broadcasting in Virginia, and they have some very good resources for families on how to manage traumatic brain injury. So I think there's some out there at a national level where people can reach out to to get help.
2: Well, fantastic. Uh, Is there anything else that I have failed to ask you that you think may add value? I would love to hear that.
3: (laughs) Well, I think some individuals who experience an event that causes a TBI may not seek Help treatment. And I think it would be helpful to understand how to encourage people to seek treatment if they have an event so that they get it documented and get it diagnosed properly. The other thing I, I say that we're working on is how to prevent traumatic brain injury. So I mentioned our motor vehicles team and our falls team. We are also looking at preventing it in sports. So I think prevention is one key issue and also encouraging people to get a healthcare assessment if they've had an event where they hit their head.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Julie, for coming on uh, this podcast today and sharing your wealth of knowledge. I am going to uh, attach all these links and resources that you mentioned. And uh, once again, I'm so excited to have you and I'm so proud of you, particularly uh, what you're doing for our community. Thank thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate
3: the opportunity.
0: All right. So once again, that was Dr. Julie Harbauer Krupa. (laughs) Another great conversation, Shuteta. So, you know, some thoughts I have. I mean, the the scope for treatment considerations is obviously very wide and has an awful lot of nuances to do. Yeah.
1: Yes. And what a great conversation that was. And, you know, I'm just going to give my little takeaways from my particular experiences with the traumatic brain injury, concussions and rehabilitation, that wider the impact, greater the challenges and more severe the brain injury, harder the process of recovery. And some changes are more permanent than the others. And one has to work on re adjusting the outlook assessing the goals and and then form a good plan but the most important thing that people to think about is that it's uh, if it's a children we talk about children then we talk about school reentry social communication skills if we are talking about adults we have to talk about career and reentry and then community integration so first we have to manage uh, the medical condition itself such as you know headaches and seizure vision problems coordination and sleep. And sleep is such an integral part of building the brain, but often gets disrupted. And unless and until somebody investigates that, that can be often overlooked. And particularly more and more independent individuals after traumatic brain injury become less and less, they're in contact with comprehensive team. And their team then boils down to either a neurologist or a psychiatrist And their visits may uh, thin down to once a month or every three months. And these symptoms become less and less visible or more pervasive and part of some behavioral adjustment. And lastly, in order to build the person back into a, a state where they can manage themselves and achieve the goals that they set out for themselves, you need to build skills. You need to develop compensation there has to be some effort put into build uh, support, whether it's friends and family or professional support. And then finally, major <laughs> issue is uh, making lifestyle changes, and that can be devastating to some. You know, if you were uh, you had a professional football career and now you had um, multiple concussions and you can't play anymore, then you have to do something completely different. But what what do you know? What is that different thing you're going to do? So. Those are the kinds of things that really weigh on this process. That's why it's so nuanced.
0: But it's important to understand that the social impact is profound and needs re-socializing, right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, this has been my personal experience. And Julie also, she and I have talked a lot about this before in our personal conversations about patients that, To be human is to socialize and and socializing somebody uh, sounds a little weird, but what it means is to have the skills that go into connecting with the world. And TBI is extremely isolating. You know, when you have undergone changes, it can affect your motivation or the very part of the brain that governs your motivation may be impacted and you're not motivated. You are lethargic. You are disengaged. You have a completely blasé attitude, but that's not because you are that person, but your brain is uh, lethargic. And the second part is you may be inappropriate or you don't have access because people are moving on. They have fast lives. And suddenly your world has come to a complete stop because of your concussion or your brain t- traumatic brain injury. So taking part, being involved, being engaged, and being with others, all are, uh, all skills are compromised. And so this can actually lead to a problem in uh, finding enjoyment and uh, finding meaning through social emotional connections. And that can be a true handicap. If your parents are dealing with children with concussion and traumatic brain injury, then there's so many factors that one needs to consider and uh, kind of re-socialize. For example, starting a complete new activity rather than going back to soccer. Soccer may not be viable. How about maybe theater, uh, <laughs> scheduling activities and, and taking and, you know, hauling the child from different places, you know, local places versus driving to specialists, which are far away, all those factors. in, in um, And a lot of people are just to their office visits or doctor's visits that their life becomes about that. And then that is also, um, you know, pulls you away from your social circle. And lastly, there, so that you have to put some special effort in socializing, such as volunteering. I highly, highly recommend a lot of my, you know, next to my office, there's four kids. And uh, so I always recommend to my patients to go there. And I have gone with some patients there to kind of see how to volunteer or teach them or gone with my video camera to help them understand how to be a good volunteer. But also there are clubs to join and after school programs, library programs, church groups, so many ways that engagement needs to be brought back. But this may not be something people are used to, particularly adults, if they had had full careers and then comes along a traumatic brain injury. and Now they have to do something that is not part of their daily life.
0: Yeah, no, it certainly is an adjustment. And I, th- I suppose it's important to understand that building or I guess I should maybe even say rebuilding skills is a really monumental task for people who are recovering from brain trauma, right?
1: And yeah, that that is what Julie and I specialized, you know, like um, cognitive rehabilitation is a focused, engaged and task specific and skill specific training. So we people like us work as coaches, just like you would go to a, a tennis coach to learn a, you know, how to serve or how to return a serve. Dominant hand, less dominant hand, how to kind of uh, have uh, intense practice with uh, hitting the balls uh, at different speeds. Those kinds of things are artificially created in the therapeutic environment. And these, in quotes, tennis balls at high speed is what we throw at uh, our patients so that they get the backhand and forehand practice, which is a process of skill building. But the lastly and the most important thing I feel that we teach as cognitive rehabilitation experts, is self-knowledge. That understanding self is the key to making changes to self. And that requires, in our field we call it metacognitive training, but that's where we do evaluating self. How am I doing? You know, giving a series of questions and teaching people how to respond to questions posed by self, such as how am I doing? Am I on time? Do I know my goals? Am I directed, uh, goal directed? You know, am I satisfied with the process that I'm I'm, um, following to achieve my goals? You know, am I aware of my hurdles? Do I have control over my environment? Do I have control over my thoughts? <laughs> I am, am I performing at my best? Does something need to change about myself? You know, those are the self-guided questions that we are experts at. And that's what is needed to bring yourself to a level where you can become your, eventual, eventually the goal is to become a self-coach. How do I coach me to achieve the goals I have for me? And this very ability is impaired after traumatic brain injury, and that's why you need an expert like a cognitive rehabilitation expert, and that's why this work is so important and magnificent, and it brings great sense of uh, satisfaction to me at least.
0: Yeah, no, the work is so important, and. And I guess I want to say something here. I mean, obviously, if someone you know, a friend or member of your family has a bad fall and there's a head injury, you you need to take that seriously, right? I mean, it might just be a little black eye or a bump in the head, but it could be potentially more troublesome. So you need to pay attention to that, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's where uh, vigilance is not going to hurt. And, and, kind of running it by somebody. And sometimes I have found that even making a record of it, because then that can be part of your medical history and then it may resolve on its own. But if it doesn't, then you have a clear connection. A a, a professional can make that connection on your behalf, which you may
0: fail to do. Yep, now that's the exact advice you gave me for a member of my family. So, all right, well, great stuff with Julia. That's all the time we have for today on behalf of our host Sucheta Kamath and all of us at Cerebral Matters. Thank you for listening today and we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.